Hello and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Hey Jason, how's it going? Pretty good. So today we talk a little bit about muscle types, muscle fiber types in particular, uh, and how, how they function for us. And I'm going to discuss a little bit of the research around them, uh, the prevalence of different tissues, uh, and sort of how this applies to our endurance performance in cycling. All right, let's jump into it. All right. So first thing, you know, there's predominantly two types of muscle fibers, uh, either slow twitch and fast twitch as they're often called or type one and type two fibers. And that's respectively slow twitch and fast twitch. So slow twitch are your type one fibers. Uh, those are your, your endurance fibers. Uh, so we talked about mitochondria previously. These are the fibers that have a really high density of mitochondria. And these are the fibers that we want to use to help us burn fat. These are the fibers that are going to allow us to pedal for a long time at a little bit lower intensity, but allow us to go for a really long time and maintain a steady pace. Um, and then you have your type two fibers, and these are your fibers that are explosive power. So this is your sprint, or if you're weightlifting, or if you're uh, in a sport that requires jumping, and those are the fibers that you're really engaging under a high load and when you need that explosive power. And so maybe not as useful uh, for endurance cycling, certainly uh, as a track cyclist, as a sprint rider, you're going to want to have these fibers in abundance for your performance, but for the, the longer efforts, these may not be as important. And now there's actually some, there's like a type, they call it like a type 2A fiber, which is an in-between fiber. And it has, it's kind of like mixed properties of the two. I, this is the fiber that I imagine like the, uh, the riders that do the pursuit have a high, high proportion of. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is a type two fiber, correct? It is. Like there are only two types of fibers. Yep. But it's, it's sort of a hybrid between the two, right? And it, is, it has more type one characteristics and by, by more, I mean, it, it doesn't produce as high of force as the true type two fibers, but it lasts longer. It can produce that force for a longer amount of time um, than without fatigue. So it's a, it's a little bit in between. And so kind of uh, how I imagine it is, you know, we're all born or in adolescence have some determined proportion of slow twitch and fast twitch. And these type 2A are, okay, you, you have too much fast twitch. So let's, you know, train that fast twitch to act more like a slow twitch because we can't actually change the ratio. We just have to train the fast muscles to slow down a bit. Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. And that's the uh, effect of doing training, aerobic training on those type two fibers is they're going to move more to this type two A from the type two B. Um, that's the true fast switch sprint type fiber. Um, again, they're still a fast switch fiber, but their, their properties change a little bit uh, as a result of endurance training, as opposed to sprint training, right? If you go and you say lift weights or sprint or do explosive activities all the time, those type two fibers are going to tend towards type two B, uh, but, you know, as opposed to type two A and the more endurance type capacity that you, like, that you would see. And it's useful for cycling performance. Well, at least endurance cycling performance. Yeah. And I'd even say that base training is really where you cement that type two A fiber type. This long, long miles at that 50% VO2 max really starts to get a lot of those adaptations. Yeah, as, as well as improving the efficiency and uh, use for your type 1 fibers. By the way, there's a lot of advantages to base training. We haven't uh, expressed that to you yet. 
All right. So just going to go through a little bit of kind of, you know, theory or you know, background on how, how these fibers interact too. I think that's important, right? So, okay, well, type one or more, your endurance fibers and type two or more, your power fibers. And that's true. Uh, the other interesting thing is that they, they recruit preferentially and with the load that's required. So with a low force, you're going to recruit type one fibers first. And you're basically generally always recruiting the type one fibers until the load required exceeds the type one fibers ability to meet it. And then you start to recruit type two fibers. So again, this is consistent with cycling performance, right? If you're doing, you know, a, a low intensity, steady state, you're mostly using type one fibers or maybe entirely using type one fibers. And then as that pace or that load increases, then you start to turn on type twos until you reach you know, the maximum load and all the fibers are working together. But you're always going to do the type one fibers preferentially first and then sort of move up and bring in the type twos later. It's interesting how uh, when we talk about our energy systems, we're really short efforts. You know, we're using our um, creatine phosphate and then we have the anaerobic glycolysis and then aerobic glycolysis. And um, it's the same thing with, say, like a threshold effort. You're, you are using some of your anaerobic engine. You are using some of your creatine phosphate engine as an accumulation of the, the total workload. It seems to be the opposite starting at sort of lower intensities, longer efforts. We only use type 1. And then as we get towards these shorter efforts, we start to recruit the type 2 more. And so realizing that for every given effort at every given intensity, there is some ratio of contribution of these muscle fiber types. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that this ratio is related to the amount of fat burning or carbohydrate use that we use during that effort. Right. That's what I was going to say is it's based on the source, the fuel source that you're using for that effort, right? And so if you're using uh, a lot of fat burning, it, it has to be type 1 fibers because those are the ones that are um, set up with the mitochondria and have the right enzymes on board to be able to use the fat as an energy source as opposed to maybe the type 2 A's. They don't have you know as many mitochondria. They're going to use maybe more carbs versus uh, type two Bs. They're, you know they're, they don't they don't even deal with oxidative um, energy processes. That's all uh, it's all anaerobic. You know, so yep. creatine phosphate or glycolysis. Yeah, it's interesting to even extrapolate this even further out to sort of what we think of the stereotypical slow twitch or fast twitch athlete. If, if we look at, you know, type one athletes, we, we think of this really lean rider uh, with like low body fat percentage. And that sort of fits into, well, yeah, they have mostly type one and they're doing a lot of fat metabolism. So it makes sense that they'd be really lean. We think of, you know, a weightlifter, a really type two heavy athlete. We see a lot more fat mass. We see a lot more like total mass and, you know, just seeing this connection scale up to the whole body. And so, you know, you, you certainly see um, hypertrophy across actually either fiber type, uh, even with just endurance training. So if you're doing endurance training, you will see over time hypertrophy of type 1 and, and type 2 fibers. Uh, I think what's interesting is also with resistance training, you do see hypertrophy of both fiber types. Um, now, what's, I think, you know, obviously weightlifting has a different demand, right? It's, it's, it's definitely recruiting type 2 fibers because you're past the demand for type one versus endurance cycling may lean much more on type one. 
Um, and there's an interesting sort of physiology impact of that, which is for a type one fiber to be really efficient, you need to have a high density of mitochondria. So then if you go and lift weights and hypertrophy that fiber, you don't necessarily add mitochondria by lifting weights. So you add fiber volume and relatively speaking, the density of mitochondria goes down. And so this is where we're going to say, you should go to your base training. You should, you should lift weights and you should go to your base training because that's the base train that's going to build back that mitochondrial density into that, you know, now larger fiber that can now produce more force. And so that's a, like a really powerful combination. And the research does bear this out where you see that resistance training helps endurance training performance. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never, I guess I never really connected those two as the reason we know strength training is important. We know base training is important, but I guess you're saying that uh, by lifting weights, we, we are able to get more hypertrophy. So we get more muscle mass, but um, actually the mitochondria make up a smaller portion because they don't increase in size or increase in density. So then we have to work to get them back to their previous density. And then we end up just having more mitochondria and more muscle function. Right. Which is great, right? That's what we want to get yeah. down the road or trail faster than we did before. And so the argument is you kind of need both. And you, you know, you can't just be in the gym all winter. You can't just be out on your bike all winter. It's the synergy of the two. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there's another interesting aspect to the muscle fiber types. Um, and it's that it actually, so as you pointed out earlier, it's kind of determined by who, who you are. Like you, did you pick the right parents for this? Um, and if you have the right genetics, then, Hey, muscle fiber type, great. It's moving in the right direction for you. You're you know, more type one athlete, more type two athlete, um, somewhere in between. And I, I've always been a big fan of the idea that the sport probably picks the athlete in the sense that you have to have a certain makeup to be able to succeed at a, at a given sport. And, you know, some, there's a range, but if you're, you know, 80% type one fibers, you're not going to make it as a hundred meter sprinter. It's just not, just not going to happen. And the same thing is if you're, you know, 80% type two fibers, you're not going to make it as a marathon runner. It's, I mean, you can do it. You can suck it up and try to get it done, but you won't be successful at the highest level. So, I don't know. Well, I guess my counter argument to that specifically is cycling. I think cycling is a great example of a sport that any number of people have found a way to sort of break into it and make their own name in the sport. I mean, Taylor Finney is uh, massively tall. Nairo Quintana is massively tiny. Um, you know, you have heavy riders, you have light riders, you have you know, really uh, bulky riders, you have really lean riders. I think that cycling as a sport is really conducive to, you know, any type of person. But I think the big thing is you know, finding the discipline, finding the course, finding the event that suits you within the sport is really important, which that's, that's fair. And, and wheels are a great equalizer, right? Somebody, you can have people who wouldn't quite make it as a good runner, but have the right muscle fiber type distribution. And you put them on wheels and all of a sudden it, you know, it, it equalizes the world a little bit. Yeah. And it's also interesting uh, while we're on this topic, the, the way that, for example, your lung volume increases uh, cubically as you get taller, uh, whereas your profile, your aerodynamic profile increases quadratically. So if you're taller, you should have more lung volume relative to aerodynamics. So 
that's there's this sort of mathematical relationship for, for example, time trialists. The time trialists should generally be taller because of that extra lung volume. But then, you know, someone who's much smaller, they have less bone mass, they have less organ mass that could slow them down down on the hills. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but if you're too small, then you know you can't get enough oxygen, and so. Um, it's interesting, and then and then of course there's people like Chris Froome who break the equation. You know he's a great climber, even though he's very tall. And um, so I'm I'm kind of skeptical on the whole uh, genetics or uh, you know your muscle fiber ratio determines. You know within the sport of cycling, it's hard to say that it's that determinant, and I, I think it's a bit um, reductionist. And I think that it it can get in some riders' heads the whole oh I'm not a climber or um, you know, oh, I'm too bulky for this or that. And, you know, even Cadell Evans was pretty bulky and he, he was a mountain biker originally, which I think mountain bikers tend to have, especially mountain bike climbers tend to have more, more muscle mass than road climbers. I think that's very much fair. Yeah. So, you know, e- even he's a bit bulkier still, you know, still won the Tour de France in you know, a, a lot with a lot of climbing. So, um, just, just be careful you don't pigeonhole yourself too much uh, based on these, you know, your parents, I guess, is how we'd summarize it. Yeah, no, I, that's, I think that's fair. I, I, you know, I think there are limits to that, right? Like at some, if you're at either end of the spectrum, you know, I, I think most of us probably are more in the middle than on, yeah. uh, on the, you know, on the edges, right? So, all right. So I think one of these other interesting things is that there's a very, there's variation in um, the proportion of fiber type by the individual muscles so it's not like oh hey you know genetically you're 60 percent type one and 40 percent type two and that's it throughout your body that's not the case it actually varies by muscle group and you know this this does make some sense even you know even within the person right like oh this person's say you know more type two fibers versus more type one fibers generally but even within that um there's some variation within the muscle groups. So like one of the classic examples we always talk about um, for this is the soleus muscle. Uh, so that's one of the three muscles that makes up the calf. It's the one you don't see because it's the one that's closest to the shin bone. Um, so it's a little bit deeper, deeper in there. Um, and that one typically is like high 80s percent uh, type one fibers. And most people all the way up, I think I believe that there's ones that I saw that said hundred percent in one in one individual. It's like all type one. It was not a single type two fiber. Again, like it was a biopsy, so they're only taking a small cross section. But it's still right. Like you sampled it, and you only you didn't find any type two fibers. Uh, and so, and the reason for that is it's largely a postural muscle. So it, if you're standing for a long time, it needs to be engaged to keep you from falling over. So. This makes sense. If you have a postural muscle, it should be right. It should be relatively low load, yep. and it should be able to work for a really long time. So this is this makes perfect sense. So then, you know, taking that, um, I at some studies and looked at okay, well, what are the key cycling muscles and what's their relative distribution? Um, now, I will say a number of these studies are older, uh, like. 1960s, 1970s. Um, there's some newer ones, but a lot of them are older. And, you know, a lot of these are, uh, they're all going to be cadaver studies is what they looked at. And there's, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't athletes necessarily. It was usually young, uh, younger people that were otherwise healthy that they were looking at. 
Uh, so, you know, take, take it all with a, with a grain of salt in terms of what, you know, what it said across the different uh, muscles and everything. So let's go through some of the muscles here that we use in cycling. So glutes, we talk about glutes all the time. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the, and so in this particular study, I looked at the glutes and sort of divided in thirds, um, vertically. So like the top third of the glute fibers, okay. the middle third, the glute fibers, and then the bottom third, the glute fibers. Okay. And basically as you moved from top down, um, across their sample, the proportion of type one fibers decreased. Um, and again, this has to do with what the function of the fibers is. And right, the glute is such a huge muscle that it actually, depending on which part of the fibers you're talking about, anatomically, functionally, the fibers have different responsibilities. Um, so most muscles we think about, it's like, oh, it does one thing. Um, the glute's a huge muscle and it, you know, it spans a, a large part, right, across the hip joint. So even like the different fibers are positioned differently relative to the hips axis of rotation. And so that means the actions can be slightly different. So uh, the topmost portion is actually, you know, like I said, mostly type ones, it's 88%. So it's similar to the soleus in a postural regard. And it's uh, mostly for stabilizing the pelvis and the trunk over the leg. So it's a, and so I, I think about that, you know, we've talked about, um, you know, tracking of the knee. So how, how does your knee track during your pedal stroke? Well, those are the fibers that would be controlling that in part. And um, are these upper fibers of the glute that should be um, endurance. So, you know, I, I would think, and I'm going to go off on a little tangent here, but, you know, if you were to notice you had uh, deviations towards the top tube with your knee while you were pedaling under a relatively low load, uh, provided you had reasonable flexibility, like maybe that would suggest that this cranial portion of the glutes is a little bit weak because uh, that's the one that should be stabilizing under a relatively low load in endurance riding. Sure. Anyhow, back to uh, muscle fiber types and less speculation here. So as you go down into that midsection, uh, again, this is going to be more for your extending the hip. So this is what's going to be powering the bike to go forward. 73% uh, type one fibers is what they found in this sample. So majority, right? Overwhelming majority of type one. Yeah, I guess it's hard to know from uh, from context, uh, you know, what is a typical muscle? Um, I guess my initial reaction is um, back to when you said that there's differences between different muscles. Um, it, you know, like kind of obviously in that, you know, the heart is, is a great example of a muscle that is probably 100% flow twitch. Um, because, you know, we don't really need that much force and it just needs to keep going. And, um, uh, cardiac muscles, yeah, it's a different, sorry, a different entity, but definitely um, got to be on that more of that end. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess if we're talking about just skeletal muscle, uh, that would be a little different, but I guess I, I wonder, you know, how much is your quads? Um, is oh, the ratio well, closer well, don't, to, well, don't you worry. I have that for you. Is it closer to 50% or... I would probably argue it, you know, it could even be, um, more than half of the muscles are type two is what I would speculate. Well, let's get there. Okay. And, I, and I think you're going to be right. Kind of sometimes. So uh, I, I guess, you know, the, the context of the glutes. Um, so we're seeing more 
you know, fast twitch muscles as we get to the bottom. And that's because the fibers at the bottom are doing more, um, you know, powerful movements. Propulsion. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I guess that makes sense. But I, my impression would be that the glutes in general have a much higher density of slow twitch muscles, which is why the glutes are so emphasized in uh, Grand Tour riders, because they are really good at not fatiguing over time. Right, large a large muscle that doesn't fatigue for a long time. That's that's a good trick to have if you're a grand tour rider. Yep, and one that you know pushes your pedals forward. Um, okay, and so you get inferior portion of the glute, and that last section is uh, typically only forty five percent type one oh. fibers. Okay. So if you're a sprinter, I don't know, you'd have to like do some. I mean, like MRI cross sections or something to assess the relative um, proportion, you know, like where people's mass is in their glute, and if that would tell you anything about their, um, you know, sprint versus endurance performance, mm. right? Like, yeah. Uh, okay, so you want to know about quads? Um, so this particular study looked at uh, healthy females, and they actually looked at all the fiber types: uh, type one, type two. A and type 2B um, in proportion across the glutes, across the number of people. And like I said, you're you're right, sometimes kind of. Okay. Um, and oh, I have another study I'll talk about a little bit, same muscle group that we've looked at that male subjects, but so female subjects. So the range across these individuals, remember, it's all healthy, healthy individuals, the range for type one between 23% and 68%. Whoa. And so you, you know, okay. So if type one's that big of a range, you think, you know, what's coming next, right? Is big ranges for the other muscles. So mm-hmm. type two, a between 18 and 51%. And so, yeah, you know, you have to imagine this is like the trainable portion, right? So I would, I would imagine that the person that's probably, you know, if there's somebody in there that's 23% type one and they, you know, do some sort of endurance exercise regularly, they're probably the one that's 51% type 2A. Yeah. Right. Not the person that's 68% type 1. Unless all unless they only do endurance exercise, then they're also, you know, 18, you know, whatever, 18% or something. Type yeah. 2A. They they are just all of their muscle fibers are acting as if they're slow twitch. Yep. If they only do endurance training. Yep. And then so type 2B um between 32 and 77%. And I know you're going to say, but wait, didn't you say that the type ones were 23 to 68? So this, this implies that there are some people in that basically just don't have type 2A. Like they have the two sides okay. of the, the spectrum and nothing in between. And were those and people relatively untrained? It is, yeah, this just said healthy. It didn't. And this okay. is one of these older papers where I couldn't actually get to the full, full text. So I couldn't, and I, I didn't see any specifics on the, um, on the training status of these people. So we know that, well, the first conclusion here is that all of you out there have uh, fast twitch muscles. So next time you say you can't sprint, I don't want to hear it because you have at least 33%, you know, fast twitch muscles to get that sprint going. That's a, okay. Yeah. In your, in your quads. Yeah. Well, and we know that sprints are quad dominant, correct? Right. Quad, yeah, yeah. Quad and she gets some glute there too. Yep. And uh, your, your gastroc, not your soleus. Yep. Um, so speaking of which, just a little tidbit here is that, uh, the gastroc's 
you know, about 55% uh, slow twitch. Okay. So more, right? Of the, of the calf muscles, right? It's the one that's going to be responsible for the explosive. Yeah, the gastroc is the big uh, teardrop on the calf. Yep. 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 Yeah, it's what you, what you see from behind there. Yeah, and that's interesting. I know that a lot of world tour sprinters use their calves a lot when they sprint. If you see their side view, like um, on the Champs-Élysées is the best example because they can get a motorcycle yeah. alongside. They have so much, uh, you know, ankle extension uh, in their riding. So, um, you know, that they have what you're saying, an average of 50, 55% uh, slow twitch or fast twitch. Sorry. Then, slow, slow switch. No, 55% slow twitch. Yeah, so, so. 45% fast twitch. Um, right. You know, now here's two muscle groups that no matter what, you know, you should be able to use during your sprint. Okay, so I, I said I'm going to talk more about quads and uh, proportions and everything. And so, again, this is a, a an older study, uh, 1979. I, and again, I don't, I don't really get the, the abstract. So I've only got sort of the, the very highest level data. Um, and I, I think there's, there's more to be uncovered here. I mean, there's something in between the lines or just the subjects that, you know, their, their training status. So they, I don't know how they found these people. I mean, that's like biopsy to ton of people. So found three people who had 78% average, 78% slow twitch fibers in their quad. And three other people who had average seventy six percent fast twitch in their quad. Whoa! Right? So like these these people are like on the ends. Like I, I I sort of wish I had access to the full paper to be able to see how many people I had to recruit to find these six people. Because right? this is not you know based on the numbers I just read about the female the female study. Like there's no way that those are just like the first six people that came into the lab. Yeah. All right. There's there probably be a lot of recruiting and biopsies and. To figure out to get those people selected, and so did they? Did they compare um, some effort or? So then, what they actually looked at was they looked at cycling efficiency at two different cadences, and so this is why I think there's, there's a little bit to be still figured out here, and maybe there's something that's you know in the full text of the paper that would um, shed some more light here. But in, at any rate. They picked uh, 60 and they picked 100. Okay. And we've discussed many times before that high-level riders tend to be closer to 100 when they're riding, and that's, that's pretty efficient for them. What they found is that at 60, um, no, no difference in efficiency across the slower fast twitch group. Effectively, they had the same level of efficiency. When they moved to 100, the fast twitch group was actually more efficient. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I, I wasn't able to see what the training status of the people was or if they were experienced cyclists. But, you know, you and I both know that if you try to pedal, you know, 10 or 15 RPMs faster than you're used to, your your you know, your heart rate goes up, you get a, a little jerky, you're not smooth anymore, and your efficiency goes down. Yep. And so part of me is, okay, we're talking about 1979. So I don't think, I mean, this is predates both of us. I don't think high cadence was trendy in 1979. So even if they were trained cyclists, I would posit that they weren't trained at riding at that cadence, right? 
Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, from the human power generation episode, we know that there's lots of studies that say 50 or 60 cadence is the highest power production for most, you know, either trained or untrained cyclists. And then it's only these really top athletes who can get their cadence up and show better results at really high cadence. It's interesting because it makes you think that, so the fast twitch fiber, high fast twitch fiber riders were more efficient at 100 cadence than their slow twitch peers. And it could just be that um, the slow twitch muscles failed to coordinate properly because they failed to you know, excite and unexcite in the right rhythm at mm-hmm. that higher speed. And so because a lot of at higher speeds, a big part of it is the coordination of the muscles and actually stopping. You need to stop pushing down eventually and in order to scoop back up. And if you don't have that coordination, you can't get the, the fast, um, you know, the fast squeezing of the muscles to work quite right. I think that's uh, that's my initial reaction to the difference. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like that coordination, right? And it, probably they're not on you know there's like not they're still pushing they have negative force on the pedal right because they're not cycling their muscles on and off in the right at the right um, rate and so they develop a negative force yeah and um to sort of more broadly talk about cadence and how cadence fits into your muscle fiber type so we know that the force per cycle is lower uh, when you have a higher cadence that's sort of the big benefit for a lot of that's sort of you know what's touted as the reason why you should be going high cadence is because your muscles last longer and they they don't wear out quite as much. So it's interesting because um, if you're a slow twitch athlete, the lower cadence should be pretty fatiguing because you're starting to recruit those type two those slow these fast twitch muscle fibers because the force is quite high. So it seems intuitive that. The leaner riders, the slow twitch riders should be able to get a higher cadence. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting that this study seems to indicate that actually it might be the fast twitch riders who are better at higher cadence. And and now now that we mention it, you know, track riders are sort of one of the best examples of this, that they they really like the high cadence, 115, 120, and then the, the match sprinters up at 130, 140. So um Maybe maybe it's more intuitive than we thought initially that um, these fast twitch fiber riders would have a higher cadence or more easily, you know, be able to sustain the higher cadence. Yeah, and there's probably a couple of interactions happening there, right? There's that idea, and maybe if you took uh, elite level riders and and repeat this, and you you know did 100 and 140, you'd find the same result, right? The the track sprinter type riders do really well at the 140; they're more they're efficient there and equally efficient 100 and then you take the more slow twitch riders at the high level you make them pedal faster and they don't uh, maintain their efficiency yeah at and higher rate now that we're thinking of uh, ways or future studies comparing the rider's natural cadence to their muscle fiber type sort of mm-hmm. self-selected cadence it, it could be that slow twitch fiber athletes actually prefer lower cadence for some reason and then the mm-hmm. the fast twitch athletes uh, prefer the higher cadence so i think i think it would be useful to also compare um, what does this person normally do because if, if all the slow twitch riders are, are normally 60 or 70 cadence riders of course they're going to be inefficient at 100 cadence sure sure all right i only have one more study that i want to talk about 
Um, and this one in particular is not a cycling study. I will, I'll admit to that, but I think in principle it applies. It's a running study. And then this particular study, they were looking at the comparison of muscle mass and fiber type between, um, sprint runners and endurance runners. So, okay. I mean, similar, I was still using our legs, uh, and similar, um, distribution between the shorter and longer parts of sport. And so shocking, the sprinters had more mass. Interesting. Um, but in very specific places, did sprinters have more mass in very specific muscle groups, um, than their endurance counterparts. So in particular, um, rectus femoris, so quad muscle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, vastus lateralis, also quad muscle, the hamstring muscle group, okay. and the only one below the knee, the lateral gastroc, hmm. which I think is particular to running. Um, I mean, okay. this is your running thing and how you're generating force there. And one of the things they noted was actually generally, um, the sprinters is like their thighs were bigger than the endurance runners. And I think, you, I think you observe that, um, generally, like if you go out went to a track meet, you would observe that the sprinters have larger thighs. I yep. think if you observe that in the bike race too, right, the sprinters have larger thighs um, and sometimes larger calves, but not always. And they made an interesting comment, which this is specific to running for sure, is they thought that the, the shank, so the calf and the lower limb was similar in size because if it's too large, it becomes a impediment for moving forward and accelerating. And so that's why they hypothesized that it was like only the thighs that you really saw um, and the random lateral gastroc, but really the thighs where you saw the difference in muscle mass um, relative between the two groups. Yeah, that's interesting. There, There is this theory of, um, I think specifically the reason Kenyan marathon runners are so fast, one of the reasons is because their calves are very lean. And so mm-hmm. the the issue with the calf with running specifically is the, um, the pendulum axis is the hip. So yep. the amount of inertia or momentum it takes to move the foot is is a lot higher for someone with a lot of calf mass because it's a more weight at the end of the string. And if you want to have a high cadence, you want to move fast, it's better to have less weight at the end of the pendulum. Uh, but it's interesting because that's sort of, it feels like mixing up the causation and the result. I think that for a runner, they're not actively training to have small calves. Um, no, no, no. It's uh, correlation causation, right? Yeah. So I think that it's tough to draw conclusions about the lower leg uh, muscle mass, but I think for the upper leg muscle mass, I think it makes sense that you'd have more knee extension and knee flexion in a in an athlete who's doing more powerful um, sports or events. And also, you have hip hip flexion and hip extension there as well, right? With the hamstrings and the rectus femoris, you can do a little hip flexion as well. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, you, you'd have to really think about um, these differences, and I think that a good follow up study would be for cyclists to see. Uh, difference in movement patterns for different athletes with different muscle fiber types and see if uh, a trend exists where you know what what is their typical recruitment pattern and potentially looking at if that causes injuries or if if we can sort of start to characterize riders better yeah absolutely 
Um, and then the only other thing um, that I think found interesting from this study, and I know you, and you know, this will, this will change because these athletes are specifically trained and like they, you know, intentionally pick the two ends of the spectrums, right? The, the sprinters and the, you know, the distance runners, um, right? If you did somebody that ran the mile or ran the 800, you'd probably see something more in the middle. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it tended that when you looked at fiber type, and I, I think they must have normalized this for the mask. because otherwise this wouldn't make sense. Um, Cause it, you know, it's okay. Well, the, the spinners typically had 60% more type two fibers than the, um, the endurance runners, distance runners. So, you know, if you don't normalize that for mass, then it just means, well, the sprinters were bigger. Like, well, we, we yeah. knew that. And um, we already said, we already said that cause I told you they had greater mass in those specific muscle groups. So I think that's normalized for the mass there is about 60% more, um, type two fibers. Again, this makes sense. They're, you know, they probably had more out, out of the gate and then they were specifically training those fibers and, you know, getting hypertrophy in those fibers. So of course this makes sense. Um, now, you know, I think it's interesting you know, to the point you made earlier as well, you know, you can train, we have this fiber type, you know, um, adjustment where you have your type two B's become type two A's and they're more like your type ones. And that's maybe allow you to do better endurance performance. And so, who knows if some of these sprint athletes trained for endurance, you know, they may not be able to run with the elite level distance runners, but maybe they can run a really good mile or something. Mm -hmm. uh, who knows? Um, but you know, obviously take it, take it with a grain of salt that like, yes, this makes sense, but you're also looking after you found the result, right? You're saying like, Oh yeah, these are really great sprinters. Ah, we know type two fibers, you know, are likely to contribute to sprint performance. Lo and behold, they have more than the endurance runners who don't really need to have as high a type two concentration and should have sort of trained that out over time anyhow. Yep. And, and it's interesting to think about um, kind of a takeaway for the rest of us is, you know, there is some control. And I guess the biggest thing is keeping in mind, you know, kind of having a look in the mirror and saying, what kind of athlete am I? What kind of events would I do well in? And also realizing that there is some controllability with the ratio. Yeah. And I think you, you intuitively probably have a pretty good idea just from being a kid, right? Like, were you the kid that went out and ran a mile? Like it was no big deal because you're more type two, type one muscle fibers, or are you the one who like just really fast sprinting in whatever sport you played, right? Like you were always the fastest kid on the playground, but you hated running the mile because you know, it was six minutes too long. Yeah. So, or like, you know, you can jump really high or like you, you have those little clues of sort of where you lie on the spectrum. Uh, if you just think back to that, it'll give you a pretty good, you know, at least some, some intuitive idea of where sort of where you are, um, not, not necessarily precise. And then obviously you're, you know, if you've been cycling for a while, you probably have a, again, a fair idea of like, what are your strengths when you're riding? Probably gives you a fairly good idea of where you stand on that spectrum. Yep. And then I would also say, um, you know, remember it is trainable. Remember that you can still find success in the sport, um, you know, work towards your strengths, but also be willing to adapt, you know, what you have and what you have to work with. And I'm always interested in, you know, can, you know, there are some, uh, some athletes or cyclists who can sprint for like 30 seconds. I'm more like the seven second sprinter. 
you know, and I, I try to uh, launch as late as possible. Other athletes, they go from 400 meters out and you just never see them again. And so, um, you know, thinking if you're racing, if you're trying to beat your buddies up the hill, um, you know, figure out what is your advantage based on, you know, your personal physique and figure out how you can, you know, get an advantage over your competitors. And, you know, that's sort of a, a big part of cycling is, is figuring out you know, what you can do and, and then executing on it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously we, we like to talk about the science, right? Really find it interesting. And I think there are little pieces that we can take even, you know, yes, we know that we're, you know, have a certain proportion, but yes, it is trainable. And, you know, what are the things that we can do to optimize that training? Uh, I think in the case for endurance performance, the answers are some resistance training and some base training, right? Because that's going to, one, allow us to hypertrophy our type 1 fibers, and two, it's going to allow us to increase the mitochondrial density. Both of those things are going to be good for our endurance performance. So just, yeah, you know, look, I think, like you said, Jason, cycling and success in cycling is about, you know, knowing, knowing yourself and knowing how to make the best of the competitive situation you're in and being a little bit clever. And of course, hopefully, you, you know, you put in the training, you're smart about that and take these little tidbits to help optimize that training. Absolutely. So, um, just to, uh, wrap this up, I guess, um, I just want to say thanks everyone who is taking the time to listen to our episodes. Thanks to everyone who made it this far in this episode. Um, if you like what we're doing, please review, please share with your friends, except I guess we always say, unless you don't want them to get better you're trying to move up the ranks in your local group rides. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, please keep listening. You know, thanks for, thanks for listening so far. And, and as always until next time, keep the riverside down. <laughs>